I've been using um, bad jingles as a way to sort of like, I don't know, uh, give the world a finger or What's your favorite bad jingle? Um, I'm really into the 1877 cars for kids right now. How's it go? 1877 cars for kids, K-A-R-S cars for kids, 1877 cars for kids, donate your car today. Whoever wrote that that is, hopefully they got a little, what about, what? Five one eight three one hundred. What is that? It's on Empire.com. What is it for? It's something Empire. Yeah, um, it's carpet cleaning or something. At one point, University of Phoenix used a new pornographer's song, which is a ve- one of their very catchy songs. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah. yeah, the Bleeding Heart Show. Yeah, yeah. That was a good, that, I mean, first of all, good for the new pornographers for, for getting some cash on that. And also, I was like, I might want to go to this school. Sometimes movies are so good. Like, I, like I've only seen The Social Network once because it's literally a perfect movie. Yeah. I've, well, I've seen that more than that. And I used to listen to, I had an MP3 of the entire movie that I would listen to while I was grading papers. The Social Network? Yeah. You like, wow. <laughs> That's commitment. Did you, what is this? What are we doing? This is old pack. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna call an audible today in describing this and say yeah. this is a this is a comedy podcast where we look at performance studies and culture studies and theater studies scholarship and take it way less seriously than we should. It's a humorous and sometimes perverse and often baffling um, exploration of the ins and outs of academia from two people on the bottom of the food chain with nothing left to lose. Good job. Who are you? The, my name is Patrick. They, them, theirs. I'm Robin. She, her, hers. Wow. That, so um, you were a comedy podcast. You just like threw on another um, iTunes keyword for us. I know. I think we're finally ready to call ourselves that. Because you're like, calling I, ourselves comedy. We're not, we're not doing, there, there are enough people doing serious performance studies podcasts. Are there? Are there? Okay, there's the one. Okay, yeah, I guess so. I guess we we abuse each other and ourselves. So, yeah, and there there are returning there are recurring gags now and recurring jokes that if um, if you listen to now um, you might hear the recurring jokes and they feel very repetitive at times. But they're also we're, quite. Fun. We're creating a mythology, if you will. Right. Yes, we we are are self mythologizing our reality. Do you, do you ever, do you remember Oh Hello? Yeah. They have a podcast now. Ooh, that sounds good. It's called uh, The Podcast. Of course it is. And it's about the death of Princess Diana. It's, yeah. It's really good. I, I was just watching Burlesque. Did you ever see that with Cher and Aguilera? It's so terrible. Yes. I they, they think did it's that. redeemable. Can you do me a favor? Yeah. Uh, did you have to think about it for a second? <laughs> I kind of did because I'm a very busy person right now. That's what I'm saying. So this 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 favor extends until like August. Is yeah. you watch the peanut butter solution so we could do a podcast about it, but it doesn't have to be right now. Yeah, I I would be happy to do that. I I I'm always looking for you said it's on Amazon Prime. 
Yeah. My father says that he he's run out of good things to watch on Amazon Prime because he watched he he recently watched Crash. He really liked it. The David Cronenberg. <laughs> no, no, the other one. Okay. Do you think you like the David Cronenberg one? No. I'm not sure if no. I like it. Well, the it's I know that I don't have that fetish because if anyone's that's ever seen my car would know that I wouldn't be able to make it through the day if I had a car crash fetish. Well, seeing your car it might actually lead to believe you do have a car crash fetish. <laughs> well, oh boy. What's your, do you have a fetish? Oh, let's save that for the After Dark episode. That's the Patreon-only episode. That's a Patreon-only episode uh, okay. where we can talk about all of my uh, my weird, like, I'm an intellectual. So, of course, like, intellectuals understand affect in a way that is, I think, compartmentalized in a way that lends itself to having very specific fetishes. Anything good happened to you this week? Anything good you want to talk about this week? Well, yes, I was elected uh, vice president of the Graduate Student Senate. Wow, congratulations. I've not seen the ballots, but I've been told it was unanimous. Who told you that? I have sources. Okay, um, well, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. I've You're an elected official. That's a lot of responsibility. I, I'm the Mike Pence of our graduate school. Yeah, I see that. I see that for you. Does that make you the Anthony Fauci? I was just going to say that. <laughs> yep, I'm the, yep. Um, okay, anything, um, actually, I asked the question. I don't know if anything good happened to me this week. I mean, it's it's not like, it's just more of the same. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I feel like I, I had some energy this week that I was able to, like, help support people when they were really spiraling, but I'll probably spiral yeah. next week. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was yeah. I was really spiraling yesterday, and I was appreciative um, that you were able to sort of talk me down off of the ledge proverbially. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was I was not in a great place. I just, yesterday was a very frustrating day. It's yeah. been like, yeah. what's so frustrating is I'm in one of these holes where I'm behind, and I have teachers that are that are offering me ways to get out of that hole. Yeah, but I am. Yeah. I have so much other stuff thrown at me that if I if I dig if I take their offers to dig myself out of that hole, I create another one. Yeah, two things. One is I know I sound self congratulatory about look what a great good friend I am, but I actually felt good that because I mean it wasn't just you. I talked to some other people who because you know like we all need to fucking get through this. I mean even if we get it through physically, it's going to take a mental on people i i think i always think that it's, it makes me happy when people are able to take a joy in being a good friend yeah because that yeah. Give, that that is more fun for me as a friend than if they resent how good of a friend they are that that if they resent how good of a friend they are yeah like yeah it's much i'm much happier to find out that you're happy um to, to be supportive than to find out that you're unhappy to be supportive. You mean that I feel like overloaded or. Right. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. I mean, if I was ever overloaded by you, I would tell you. Yeah. We, we have good boundaries, which is why I, I 
I felt it, I felt really good about last night because I felt like we were able to be there for each other without like becoming some sort of codependent emotional like seesaw. Yeah. <laughs> good. Thank you for the hand motions. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, and I don't know, like, I also don't like telling people, oh, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Cause I don't know that. Right. But for you, I would say, right. think about what you got through with your prelims. I mean, stress, you were coming out, you were having, you know, the marriage stuff and you still got that done. Yeah. So yeah, I trust yourself. Yeah. That's and I'll call that up again, but yeah. Oh yeah. No, I was thinking about that yesterday. Um, and it's all the other thing to, that makes me feel better is I was talking to the rest of my cohort and they feel like they're in the same exact boat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think it's just that we're starting to really realize how much is being expected of us. And the move to online a lot of really draconian accountability uh, measures and like over assessments, I think like on a university wide level, which is good because they need, we need to find out if students are struggling, but I just don't have like, I had to like individually email students I hadn't heard from in, in a few weeks. Well, some of them I've heard back from, some of them I've not. Um, like I have 38 students across two, two classes. I can't hold their hands through all of this. I, if I was teaching smaller sections, I probably could. If yeah. this was like my, and if this was like my, my freshman, um, I absolutely would be able to be more present for them all the time. And it's just frustrating because I feel like a bad teacher right now. And there's not a lot that I can do to fix it at this point, other than just fix. I, so I spent like three or four hours today fixing my canvas for the last six weeks of the semester for the final unit yeah. um, assignment. Yeah. It's, I guess in in really in contrast to that, I know graduate students are different, but one of my professors has really been hands off during this online time, and I actually appreciate it. Like it feels, I mean, he's there if we contacted him, but it just feels like less pressure, you know. So maybe that, some people are enjoying that. I don't know that that's an option for this particular class. Anything else? Anything else exciting going on this week? Um, we're now, um, there are now coronavirus deaths in Wood County, according to yeah. the map today. I mean, yeah, and I don't want to make light of them. It's very tragic. But again, like perspective, like, yeah. we're, we're, we're it, it's okay. It's, it, we're doing, we're doing exactly what we should be doing. Right. Podcasting. I mean, we're like the, the only people who are continuing to podcast through this covid virus i guess that's probably true <laughs> yeah uh, i mean we're bra we're so brave i know the the real heroes are the comedians who are are, are dealing with their internal anxiety um, um and turning that into comedy um and into instagram live shows yeah yeah i know like every celebrity thinks they're on like an like a like an iso tour like if I don't present my five minute set every night, like the coronavirus wins. The ISO is a protocol for a disc image. Oh, I was the USO, whatever it is, when you go and entertain the troops. 
Yeah. Um, I, I've met a few people that do USO uh, through stand-up comedy, and every person that I've met that's like a USO comedian has been, without exception, uh, just a massive jackass. Oh, I thought you were going to go the opposite, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the organization is great. Yeah. But, like, I have my limited experience of faith. I think that I have been buying a lot of candles. I've been very into candles lately. I think because I'm home all the time and I want to make sure my house doesn't smell gross. So I'm, I'm yeah. right now, if just to set the scene, I have a bamboo eucalyptus one going right oh, now. Oh, that sounds nice right now. Yeah. Talk about this week. We, we read a play. Yeah, we read a play. The play is called, what is the, the full title is? Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. So just to, just to, um, so I don't read plays often because I don't. Well, this must have been an adventure. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that like sometimes reading a play is, diff is, you know, it's a different kind of reading and something that you're probably right. more used to. Um, yeah. we, for a class, I had to read a play, um, but it was the play that the, the, theater department was putting on so i chose to see, like we had the option of seeing it or reading it and obviously i went to go see it just to which, which one was this uh play in five bettys oh yeah oh, oh, collective rage yeah that's uh that was a great play it was um so Very different this, than this one yeah a little different so this was um an interesting play i'm glad i knew the story structure beforehand which was very helpful yeah Okay, so how how do you want to start talking about it? There were in the nineteen nineties. There was eighties and nineties, and now there was a TV show called The Simpsons. What's that? And it's an animated show, um, and it takes place in like a fictitious town known as Springfield. Okay, I don't and, think you need to go back this far, but yeah. <laughs> so this play imagines a future in which there's been some sort of national nuclear disaster that sent us into sort of an apocalyptic. Um, big all all the power in, in the country goes out. It's unclear how far this disaster is. Well, sort of in the the North Atlantic um, towards Midwest, mm -hmm. um, and so it. And so the first act of this this post apocalyptic world we see um, in the script describes it as the the near future. A bunch of people sitting around a campfire um, in a very, very sort of in that the road um, post-apocalyptic mode that we're used to seeing in cinema now, except action of the first act is them trying to remember an episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, um, like collectively story. adding their memory. Like there's, it's like their group storytelling. Right. That that in this era where there is no technology, there's no like constant stream of media, the memory, um, like they be, the, the archive of the, the memory of the performance becomes more, becomes an incredibly valuable tool. It goes back to like an oral cult. It like goes from a textual to an oral culture. Yeah, it's almost like the, uh, it's, could, you could look at it as something like Diana Tate Taylor's repertoire of the archive and seeing how in the absence of a digital archive um, 
And The Simpsons, by the way, you can watch every episode of that right now on Disney+. Plus. So the way that we think about that show is... we oh, It's always that, accessible to us. It's always accessible to us. What was interesting about The Simpsons was that for a while it wasn't like that. There was that... Because it, it used to be on TV all the time um, in reruns, but it was still running. So those classic episodes like... Um, Cape Fear, which is the episode that they're trying to remember. The epi- I think a lot, it, this is such a citational play because the, it's a, a play about an episode of a TV show. And that episode of the TV show is a parody of a remake of a film. It is these concentric circles of citation. It's very recursive in that over time, they, they're talking about this episode and they took it. It's, and that first act of the play was created, it was devised. So a lot of that was improvised by actors that Ann Washburn hired and worked with these actors who improvised a lot of that, uh, those memories. Even reading it, it felt like that. Yeah, and like, I remember watching that episode. You're not a Simpsons watcher, are you? I know it because it's in the cultural milieu, but I've never really watched it. There are so many weird pieces of pop culture in that, that at the time I got some of them. Weirdly, as a 12-year-old, I got the Gilbert and Sullivan references. (laughs) Well, you would. I mean, you would. You were like bored. You like came out of the womb singing, you know, that song, like messed up the joke. You know, you know what song I'm talking about? Yeah. From the USS uh, Major Modern General. Yeah, exactly. Um, thank oh, you. better far to live and die under the brave black flag I fly. Why do you think she picked that particular Simpsons episode for the play? I have, I have theories. One is that it because it is so citational, it shows one of the things that like there's only one TV show that this that this play could be about for like, and that is The Simpsons. Because within The Simpsons, all of popular culture of the 20th century can be filtered. It is like a hologram of the entirety of American culture uh, of the 20th century because of how much information is condensed into it. And I think it couldn't have been like one of the great episodes. It couldn't have been something like as iconic as Bart Sells' Soul or the Indian Scratchy and Poochie show, or Krusty gets canceled. But it has to be one that's like a. It can't be like an outlier. It has to be like a very like one a very Simpsony Simpson show. Things. Well, wouldn't Family um, Guy also be a good show to use then? Family Guy, I don't. I, I mean, don't, I don't care for it, but it's that's very that's very citational. Yes, but The Simpsons is uses uses its citation to think, say things about the American experience and the American family experience. Yeah. Where family is less interested in having something to say and it's just like a very much a joke structure. And I respect Family Guy for that, but I will always prefer The Simpsons because there is true heart. The people that are right, writing that, at their, their peak, like your Al Jeans and your Matt Greenings, all of those people that were involved um, at that time had a genuine love for these characters. 
Um, yeah. I think yeah. that if, when I, my students had to go see this in the fall and they hated this play. Because they didn't get the Simpson references? Yeah, exactly. My students were like, the Simpsons isn't relevant to us. So we had no entry point into this, which is what a sort of like what I was curious to talk about this with you as someone who's not a Simpsons watcher. Did the play resonate with you? Yes. Why? Because I am a I am a scholar of popular culture and how how it affects and, and just sort of what it's used for, how it's used, how it's used in communication. This, uh, you know, it, this was self-referential. It was genre bending. So yeah, everything about it. Um, and we haven't even talked of, about the second two acts. Yeah. And I don't, and I know <laughs> the Simpsons, like everything. I mean, I didn't know the episode, but like, I know the characters, the fact that they are sitting around in an apocalypse trying to remember a sitcom episode is exactly what I would do in the apocalypse. It's kind of what we're already doing. Yeah, we do this all the time. In fact, I want to, I, I have a bone to pick because one of the first short stories I ever wrote was about people in the apocalypse and to keep themselves from going crazy, they would reenact every full house episode. Uh, of the, of this play is brilliant in its simplicity because it's something that like I've thought of like, Oh, gee, I wish I had thought of that. Uh, it felt like and, you wrote it. I could see how why you like it, and it felt like in your style. Yeah, it, it reminded me of the, the types of theatrical experiments I was making as a younger, as a younger theater artist. Uh, the, what, is, what I think, the, the first act is really interesting. If, it, if that was all the play would, was, it would still be interesting and worth talking about. But it, it takes two more turns because the second act of the play jumps ahead in the future where they are they are like a like a mechanicals, like the group of the mechanicals in Shakespeare's Midsummer. Can I, can I just call jump back for a second? Yeah. Um, just some clarification. When they were listing all those names, those are people like loved ones of them that they couldn't find or they couldn't locate. Yeah. Okay. That was such a cool cultural that I, I thought about that that part too because that's such an interesting take on ritual is like what new rituals emerge when when you are rebuilding the roles of society on the fly. And they're very Why did you specific. see that as a ritual? Why did you see that as a ritual? Because of how structured it was. That one of them says we want to do this the right way. Um, they all get out their notebooks and they begin it like there is a there is a ritual process to that. Um, it is a very structured exercise. And okay, I see that now. Yeah, see, this is where it loses me in the like. Obviously, to see that enacted would have been better. So, it kind of lost. Some yeah, I, that's true. Having seen yeah. that, that that part became a lot clearer yeah. in the performance of it. Um, and I thought that's that's another really cool thing. The other thing. That that's not coming across some sort of our description of this is how much like intense like action and gunplay and violence and the threat of violence there is in this play is that you kind of go into sort of your Walking Dead um, you know um, rules um, nothing matters in an emergency sort of like taking up like 
in the second act starts with the rehearsal of a play version that the characters in the first act have cobbled together of that episode of The Simpsons. Yeah. And it ends with a gunfight. Yeah, so what I was sort of arguing is that I think Ann Washburn is positing the pop music as, as the folk music of tomorrow. Well, popular is folk is popular. That's how actually the field of popular culture started from folklore, from everyday folklore. Yeah, and so like one of the things that it gives implicit instructions in the script is that every cast is supposed to add at least one new song to the chart hits. That it's never the same twice. Per per performance, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this this groups it was it was kind of boring. They just added Rick Astley's "Never Gonna Give You Up," which is like, don't act like that's lame. You literally just did a Rick roll like a week ago. Okay, yes, I did. I I just don't understand how it wasn't Old Town Road. Oh, because that is like the the pop yeah that is that life. is the dominant meme of our of. Of that moment, I don't know what our dominant meme is now. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea just to 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 put on a play like that, but it's so it's like so self-referential that it like implodes on itself in a good way. Yeah, and I think the the overall power of seeing that third act though is that it feels like a very it feels like high church the way that that Jonathan Chambers directed it is yeah. it, he gave that the idea of what happens when you have all of the rever- reverence towards a piece of popular culture, but it has lost its, the specificity of its context. What is the power of theater when you break it down to its most archetypal um, impulses? So it was and, also self-referencing that it was a play too, in a way, the way you yeah. describe it. Yeah. and it. It was the, when the first time I read that, I, I imagined it as like a mega church. I imagined it as much more campy. Like the way I, I imagined it is sort of like a Tyler Perry play or something that's like very much meant to be enjoyed as part of a con- congregational. And I was seeing it in much more traditional Judeo Christian terms, which is why I, I was so caught off guard by just the ritual theater. No, I obviously, I don't, you know, you clearly know way more about theater than I do. And I used to not really understand how you could tell a a director is good or not. I mean, now I understand that because I actually have directed sketch comedy, but so this seems like a play where the director is like almost another, I hate to say another character in the play, but the director is very present in this play, I would imagine. I think I would I would broaden that to say the artistic team because yeah. it's a play that forces you to make choices because of the sparseness of how the stage directions are given to you. Mm-hmm. Is that in Washburn is part of this movement of almost like dramaturgical minimalism where the play was devised, but once it has been she she wants everyone to have the experience that the the artistic team is figuring it out together. And the thing, I think Jonathan comes in with a lot of ideas and questions. Like 
Jonathan's good at asking questions to get people to think about things. Yeah. So what Jonathan would say is that his role was to coordinate all of these different parts and, and to sort of facilitate their artistic ideas and like uh, have to like uh, this, a lot of this undersells how important the set design was to this and how important like the lighting and the overall look. But I'm really going to make an effort if this, if we get out of our houses, I'm going to make an effort to go to every show next season because it's there. It's like on a platter for me. Here's some great theater on your campus. My favorite sketch that I ever wrote, maybe I'll actually share it with you, was based on like a Jane Austen. It was like Jane Austen on crack. Those are, I've never read a Jane Austen book. I haven't either. I don't really want to. It's, They're fine. I don't read fiction that the often. movies are good. You don't read fiction. I don't understand people who don't read fiction. Like, how can you not? I'm like, where are the pictures? That's really, yeah. it's that simple. <laughs> but like, don't, uh, like, don't you want to just not think about being in your own head? Like, don't you just want to read another yeah. story that and is you in your mind? For. That's what what? And that's what movies for for. It's, I don't think it's the same. I haven't, I haven't regularly read fiction since I was a teenager and I went through all of the choose your own adventures. This is, I, I judge people who don't read fiction, who actively don't read fiction. I get it, but like, if I'm reading something, I feel like I should be retaining knowledge, which is a, I've tried, and I'm going to try, uh, this summer, I'm going to read one fiction book. Do you know um, which one fiction book it is? It's going to be, it's going to be one that I have in this bill. It, bill uh, oh, two, because I promised my wife I'd read her novel. Um, you, okay. So I'll, it'll be two. Um, I was thinking because, and it's a book that I haven't read all the way through, but I'll just pick up and like randomly read a passage, The Hours by Michael Cunningham. Sure. Maybe, maybe you should start out by reading short stories. Do a book recommendation if you tell me exactly like what you're looking for. Okay. I like books about millionaires, but also that like have that they also have dark sides that that also like vaguely rep, um resemble like vampire fiction are you is this a joke are you are you pulling my leg yeah i i like books about i don't like books about dogs i really fucking hate books yeah, about but dogs. i was gonna say read marley and me <laughs> I, okay go ahead what i'm gonna find I, the perfect book recommendation. i like i do like experimental prose and performative writing okay so I like narrators that kind of play around. Okay. Um, I, I like, I mean, I like vivid, dense description, but I also like lots of dialogue and sparseness. I like the ones where there's a picture for each one of the pages. I have a Grover book you'd really like. Is it, there's a monster at the end of this book? No, it's the Museum of Everything. Um, oh, Museum of Everything is a classic. It I, really is. It's one of my faves. The, and the, the part where he goes out and the, goes to the everything else, and it's just the exit. I love, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Wow, that, you know, there's so, that was just so existential and philosophical that go, that just went over our heads when we read it then. But yeah, everything else is the, like, everything else. Those Sesame Street, those Sesame Street books are great. I, I, 
we subscribed as a kid to the Sesame Street Library. Yeah. So the one I was really into the House of Seven Colors. Yeah. Which is the one where they all go into a creepy Airbnb and they're all like systematically in the in the room that would make them most miserable. Yeah. Um, you know what? Um, what my mother um, ordered one of those books where you like she like gave my name and my favorite stuffed animals and stuff. And they put it in the book for you. This is like back in the day before you could just oh, wow. do that. And I it blew like it blew my mind that there was a book about me like I could. I was very young and and if you can imagine I was a very early reader so I was reading stuff at like 3 and 4 but I didn't have like the cognitive capacity to know that this was a book my mother had pre-ordered so I was just like holy shit there's a Sesame Street book about me how did this happen